Let's just uh, bow our hearts before we uh, open the word together, shall we? Father, we just thank you once again for your word. Lord, we thank you that it's through your word you have revealed to us your character, your goodness and your grace. Father, we see the evidence of a wonderful God in creation as we look around us, but it's your word that really tells us who you are. It's your word that reminds us and shows us, Lord, of your faithfulness. Lord, it's your word that reveals to us what is required of us if we're to be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, as we turn to this book of Samuel this morning, open our eyes. Lord, help us to look into your word, Lord, just as the children of Israel would have been able to look into the laver, which was made out of the mirrors, to see the reflection. Lord, as we look into your word, let us see our reflection here. Lord, help us to see ourselves Lord, with all the the masks removed, as we really are. But Lord, help us to see ourselves as you can make us be, through the working of your Holy Spirit. So Father, we commit you this time now. Lord, just help us to be open before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have come as far as the book of 1 Samuel in our study through the Bible. These, uh, These books we're now getting to are... To me, some of the most wonderful in Scripture. We've got a whole group now that are together: First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, and they deal with the history of the nation. And there's some great lessons to learn from the mistakes that were made. But there's also some wonderful highlights, some wonderful, exciting moments as we see the Lord moving and working in wonderful ways through the nation. And it's really going to, I think, speak to us of our own lives, of how we are, of our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness at times and what it is that God really requires of us so there's a wonderful uh, section of scripture the book of first Samuel itself it's the ninth book in the Bible um, statistically as we go through um, the author is believed to have been Isaiah um, some dispute it but I think the majority of commentators accept that Isaiah is most likely the one that certainly compiled uh, the, the information we have here no doubt Samuel himself will record a lot of these things but the actual compilation as we have it now uh, seems to have been the work of Isaiah and what we're going to see is this transition from the time of the judges that we were looking at over the last couple of weeks we're looking at the judges in the book of Judges and obviously through Ruth which occurs during the times of the judges looking at the transition from that time to the beginning of the monarchy, the kingdom in Israel. And it's going to take us from the darkest period, if you like, in Israel's history to the golden age, uh, the time under David and subsequently Solomon. There, of course, is an age coming which will, be, which will eclipse those completely as uh, the son of David, the Messiah, sits on the throne of David. But in terms of the history of Israel, we're going to see this wonderful ascent now, this real peak uh, that we'll get to as we go through the next couple of weeks. So I say the times of Judges to the monarchy, and the key characters we're going to look at are going to be Samuel, Saul, and then David, in that order. We're going to see the lives of these men, very different, contrasting characters, um, and yet a lot of similarities between all of them as well. So we'll go through those things. There are so many lessons for the church that I think we can draw out of this, and we'll go through them. One of the key things that we start to see is God being rejected as their king, theocracy, the idea of God ruling over them. Um, And we'll draw the parallels, of course, with church history as we go through and see that as well. Samuel then was the last of the judges uh, that had this role, this title. And really the first seven chapters deal with Samuel, his birth, youth, his call to ministry, the office that he's given, um, and the things that occurred during the early part of his life. We're going to see then the transition as Saul is appointed then as the first king. That will take us through from chapter 8 through to chapter 15. And again, he starts with this wonderful promising beginning and then messes it up. And we'll talk about that. And then finally, we're going to see David uh, introduced to us. David is this incredible character um, that we read about in Scripture. Um, one of the, the greatest kings of all. In fact, some people would argue probably the greatest king with the exception of Jesus, of course. And we're going to see the anointing by Samuel. His service originally before Saul and then these years he spends as a fugitive. Right up front, I want to just draw your attention to the fact, we'll read that David was a man after God's own heart. You know, if you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, look at what it cost. Look at what it took to get David to that place. You see, David 
started out with a heart, no doubt, loving God, worshipping God as he was out on the fields around Bethlehem looking after the sheep, no doubt writing some of the psalms that we read and sing. But then he went through these incredible trials, and that was what made him a man after God's own heart. And we'll look at that as we go through. So let's jump straight into the first chapter. I'll just read a bit to start with because it gives us a great overview of where we're going. So, now there was a certain man of Ramathame, Zophim of the man of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. So, this area around Benjamin, around the, the tribe of Benjamin uh, area, um, and obviously around the, the area of Bethlehem itself. And we're told he had two wives. That's going to be trouble to start with, isn't it? Two wives. I've got one wife. I love her dearly. I wouldn't want two. Okay? But two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. The two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And we'll read a little bit about these individuals as we go on. But first of all, back to Elkanah and read. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, now you remember we've already seen that three times of the year, the Jews, any Jewish male that was able to, had to go up to the place that God would name, which at this point is Shiloh, and to offer their sacrifices. So he's going at the time that God had prescribed, up to offer his sacrifices. And we, wrote, we read, he gave to Penaniah his wife, and to all her sons and to her daughters portions, so things that they would be able to offer to the Lord. But to Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, a bigger portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary, so straight away we're given an idea of the relationship between these two ladies, her adversary also provoked her sore. For to make her fret because the Lord has shut up her womb. It's incredible how cruel people can be to each other. But clearly this difficult situation. And so he did uh, sorry, and he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So poor Hannah, this horrible situation. And then Mr Sensitive, her husband, steps onto the scene and says So they said Elkan, her husband husband to her, Hannah. Why weepest thou? Why are you crying? Why are you not eating? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? It's like, look, baby, you've got me. You know, it's lacking a little bit of sensitivity, we feel, here, possibly. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. And now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Now, the first lesson we learn here is that when we're in these situations, the place to go is to God. She didn't go complaining and moaning to everybody else. She comes to the Lord here. She was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and not forget thy handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come on his head. Now, I mentioned as we're going through the book of Judges, the situation with Jephthah there. Um, Jephthah is an individual who goes out to battle uh, against the Amalekites, I believe it is there. And he's in this, this desperate situation. And he makes this vow to the Lord of offering which, whatever comes out of his house first. And I believe, and again, you're entitled to, to see what you want in there, but I, I believe from where, the way it's written in scripture, that as his daughter comes out, that which is most precious to him, he again gives this child to the Lord. And I believe Hannah is doing exactly the same thing now. Possibly even, based on that example, offering to the Lord the very best that we have, the thing that costs us most. She so desperately wanted a child, and she's saying, Lord, if you give me this child, I'll give him back to you. You know, that's what we should do with the blessings that the Lord gives us. You know, if the Lord blesses us in any area of our lives, give it back to him. The idea here of no razor coming on his head is called this law of the, the Nazarite's law, the law of being set apart for a particular time, season, or whatever. In this case, she's saying that if God would grant her a son, she would give this son for life. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now, Hannah, she spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she'd been drunken. And Eli said unto her, Another sensitive man entering her life here. How long will thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. 
And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful heart. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken hitherto. Eli obviously realizes he's uh, uh, drawn a very false conclusion from the observation he'd made. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. So this is the introduction we have to this wonderful book. So Samuel, we find then, a year or so later, is born. After he's weaned, he's then taken to Shiloh and presented there before Eli. He becomes one of Israel's greatest ever leaders. In fact, equaled only by Moses. Certainly in the the Jewish mindset, this man was a great man, a great leader of the nation, a very godly man. And this exemplary character we find mentioned, specifically Psalm 99 verse 6, and also Jeremiah 15 uh, verse 1, where he's listed alongside Moses there. Incredible testimony to this man's faithfulness as he grows. But he grows up in the presence of the things of God. Samuel, as we said, becomes the last judge of Israel. And he finally defeats the Philistines. If you remember, and we're looking through in the book of Judges, Samson, we read, had begun to deliver Israel. But it's actually under Samuel that that victory is then confirmed and completed. Of course, the Philistines remain a constant problem for Israel. But finally, they come out from under the yoke of the Philistines. They're no longer slaves to them, if you like. Samuel also heads the order of the prophets. In fact, many see him as being one of the first uh, of the, the real prophets we read of in Scripture. Of course, Moses was a prophet, and we read of others, uh, Enoch, going back to the book of Genesis. Um, but in terms of the sequence of prophets that go from here on, Samuel also founded a school of the prophets as well, we're told. And he's the one, as we see, that will establish the monarchy. Incredibly important individual. Now, the monarchy... As you can see there, really we'll start. Um, Samuel is the one that brings uh, these things to pass. And Saul becomes the first king, then followed by David and Solomon. And then the kingdom divides into the southern kingdom, which is typically referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom, which retains the title of Israel. Um, the northern kingdom is taken to a, a captivity by the Assyrians in about 722 BC. And then the southern kingdom lasts a bit longer, goes up to around about 606 BC when there's the beginning of three sieges uh, upon Jerusalem. Daniel is taken away in the first siege. Uh, Ezekiel actually goes off in the second siege in 597 and 587. The last of these sieges when King Zedekiah is on the throne. Suddenly he he rebels against uh, Nebuchadnezzar who then comes back, destroys the city and everything and the Jews are then finally taken off into exile. And we'll look at those things in detail as we go through. As regards to the books that we're going to look at, it's helpful just to understand the breakdown. So First Samuel really is going to deal with the, the life of Samuel and Saul. And we're going to see David introduced. But Second Samuel then will deal with David as the king. When we get to First Kings, we really pick up the time from Solomon onwards. And then that will take us to halfway through, as it were, uh, the, the kingdoms of the southern and northern kingdoms. And then Second Kings will take us up to the Babylonian exile. Um, we know, so we'll see a number of prophets during this time. Um, in that first kind of period, we have Elijah, so at the end of First Kings, and then Second Kings, we'll see the ministry of Elisha, two of the famous prophets in Scripture. Chronicles also, though, covers the same time period. And it's interesting if you understand that kings typically will look at Israel's history and chronicles will look at Judah's history. So we're not just looking at repetitive things. Kings is written very much from the perspective of the northern kingdoms. Chronicles is written from the perspective of Judah, the southern kingdom. So when we understand that, as we read through those books over the the coming weeks and things in our own private study, and as we go through it together on Sundays, uh, it will hopefully help to understand what we're looking at as we go through. Okay, so let's jump straight into to chapter 2 then from there. We've seen the introduction to the book, and we're going to read about this uh, problem uh, with the family. This is the family of Eli. We're told now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Now the question is, why had they been even put in this position? They, of course, were uh, of the Levitical tribe. This is why they were allowed to, to be priests in the first place. 
but there was far more than just a bloodline that uh, qualified them for the work of ministry. But they're here anyway. And the priest's custom, we're told, was the, um, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came, and while the flesh was seething with the flesh hook, um, of three teeth in his hand and he stuck it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or the pot all that the flesh brought up the priest took for himself so they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came hither now there was already provision made in the law to give the priests of that which was being offered but here they're making up their own rules and they're just putting in these flesh hooks to pull out anything they get and they're saying well that's mine that's what god's given me it's a little bit like the whole you know well i'll I'll throw the money up in the air and whatever god wants he can keep whatever comes down i'll keep yeah that kind of idea i think also before they burnt the fat the priest servant came and said to the men that sacrifice give flesh to roast for the priests for he will uh, not have sodden flesh of thee but raw. So again they were asking extra of the people that were coming. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently and then take as much as the soul desires, which is the way it should have been, then he would answer him and say, no, but you should give it to me now, and if not I will take it by force. So these sons of Eli were really nasty pieces of work, completely disregarding God's law. And so we're told, verse 17, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, as we look at the church scene. We see so much abuse of this whole idea of offering and things. We see these TV evangelists, you know, asking for money. And then we read of their lifestyles, their private jets and the affairs they have and all sorts of other things they do with all this money. And the world looks on and they think, why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody give money in church? It must be foolish. And of course, that's the same as what's going on here. Because the priesthood was corrupt, people looked on and thought, why? Why should we be part of this? We don't want anything to do with this. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. I wonder what Samuel thought as he looked on. Samuel had grown up in a godly family. Elkanah and Hannah were godly people. They came to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And it, you don't, although we're not told much of Elkanah, clearly he was united with Hannah in giving Samuel to the ministry and the work of the Lord. And Samuel, having grown up in a godly family, is suddenly thrust into this environment where he's seeing all this iniquity and unrighteousness and so on going on. Just looking from the air, you can see this is the area where the tabernacle previously stood at Shiloh. There's still the remains of it there today. Uh, The dimensions can still be mapped out of exactly where the tabernacle stood, uh, the exact dimensions. And you can see just about there, that little patch in the middle of the ground. So again, we're dealing with real historic events. Chapter 2, picking up verse 27, we read, And there came a man of God unto Eli, and said unto him, Thus says the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto thy unto, unto thee... Uh, the house of the father, all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel. So reminding Eli, you know, God had already made provision and God had called you. Your whole family is special and should have been separated unto God. Wherefore, kick you at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation. Honourest thou thy sons above me? To make yourselves fat with the chiefs of all the offerings of Israel, my people. You see, whilst Eli might not himself have been actually doing these things, the fact that he allowed it meant that he was complicit. He was part of this. He could have easily have stepped in and stopped his sons and said, no, you're not going to do this. Remove them from ministry. But he doesn't. He allows it to go on. You know, there's a portion in the book of Romans where we're told about the iniquity of the, the world, the way the world is going. And it talks about not just those who do those things, but the people that stand by, that find pleasure in it, that look at it from a distance and saying they're just as bad. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that thine house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord said, be it far from me, for them that honour me I will honour. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm, and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thine house. Now we will see this prophecy fulfilled in just a moment. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation, and all the wealth 
which God shall give Israel. And there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. And the man of thine, uh, man of thine whom I shall uh, not cut off from mine altar, uh, shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thine heart. And all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. He's saying that your sons, they're going to die young. They're going to die before their time. And we'll see that come to pass. Now in contrast, and it's interesting, in the early chapters of the book of Samuel, we see this constant contrast between the sons of Eli and Samuel. The sons of Eli and Samuel. We see the way they were, and we see the way he was. Now, you're familiar with the situation, of course, in Samuel chapter 3. Eli's gone to bed for the evening. Samuel's gone to bed. Samuel hears this voice. Samuel, Samuel. You know, God has to say things twice to men. We need to hear things repeatedly, otherwise we, we're not very good. My wife will often tell me things twice to make it sink in. Eli said unto Samuel, go lie down. He's got up in the middle of the night and said you know, Samuel, uh, to Eli, what, what is it you wanted? And Eli said, I didn't call you. He says, go lie down. And finally, Eli realizes what's going on and says, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak, for thy servant hears. So uh, Eli, even though there's these things going on in his life, he's not in the right place with God, he detects, he realizes that God is calling out at this point. And so he instructs young Samuel to respond and say, Lord, speak to me, which is exactly what happens. So the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that hears it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever, for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. God was about to do the unthinkable. God was going to allow the Ark of the Covenant, the most precious holy thing that the nation had, to be captured by Israel's enemies. So the lesson is going to become very clear that our trust should never be in objects or anything else, which is clearly where Israel were at, but in God himself. You know, we stand on the brink of something equally astonishing. It's something that, you know, if told to our ears, it kind of almost just doesn't seem possible. That God is about to bring judgment on the church. First Peter 4.17 tells us that judgment is going to begin in this world. God is going to bring his, his wrath upon this world for their iniquity. Because the book of Isaiah deals with a lot of this to talk about the time of tribulation. But we're told that judgment will begin, will commence with the house of God. And I think we're already starting to see some of those things. Just as God was allowing Israel to be judged here, God will also allow the church to be judged. And we're going to see the wheat separated, gathered into bundles together. Those that are within the field, if you like, and yet not those that are of God. Arnold Fruchtenbaum talks about the visible church and the invisible church. The church that the world sees, um, that which often is represented by dog collars and formality and all sorts of uh, traditional things. That's the, the, the visible church. And then there's the invisible church, the true church, the bride of Christ. And of course we're told not to, to worry, not to concern ourselves with those things too much because the Lord is going to deal with those things at the time of the harvest. We're to let the wheat and the tares grow together. Lest, if we try and uproot all the, the tares, we'll also damage the wheat as well. But it's equally astonishing. Just as God is saying to Samuel here, I'm going to do something at which both the ears of everyone that hears it shall tingle. Well, it's astonishing to realize that God is going to be doing the same kind of thing in our day, in our midst. In chapter 4, we see that God is a God who is consistent. He's faithful, but also in regard, not just to righteousness, but that in regard to iniquity, reaping what has been sown. We see here, verse 10, that the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. Now, you've got to imagine what this is like for the nation. They've just gone through a period where they've had all sorts of problems. They've always been delivered. And now Israel, again, are under threat from the Philistines. Everybody flees. And there was a very great slaughter for their fell of Israel, 30,000 footmen. That's going to have a massive impact. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army, and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came 
Lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What means the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now we're told Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were dim and he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? What's happened? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there has been also a great slaughter among the people. And they two, and thy two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead. And the ark of God is taken. It came to pass when he made mention of the ark, this is Eli, that he fell off from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck broke and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he judged Israel forty years. No doubt he was momentarily grieved for his sons, but his real concern was the ark of God had been taken. This, this, this ark that had stood as the kind of symbol for the nation, the whole tabernacle had been effectively built around the ark. The tribes had camped around the tabernacle. The ark had been this central focus. It was represented in a sense the dwelling of God with them. And we're told that his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child. She's pregnant, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by her said, Fear not, for thou was born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. There's a really important lesson I think we can learn from this, and that's whenever the ark, representative ultimately of God's word, because that's what was contained within this box. It was the, the law, the word that God had given to the nation. When the word is taken out, God's glory departs. There are many churches that are just like that. The word has been taken out. They no longer preach or teach God's word and the glory is departed. We see countless church buildings up for sale. The glory is gone. The people have left. When the word is taken out, the glory departs. My own personal life, this was a very real situation. The church that I used to go to, it had a string of good, godly teachers and then we get to the, the liberal teachers. It was a church that my gran had gone to, my mum and dad had gone to, that I'd gone to. And one Sunday morning, I was sitting there and this liberal minister stood up and said, reading from the book of Psalms, the psalmist, whoever he was, and he said right at the top, the psalm of David. There was no need for that, whoever he was. And he was a minister who rejected pretty much every detail of God's word. And at that point, the Lord convicted me, and I left and went to a, a different fellowship, different church at that time. And it just this verse really stuck with me. The glory of God had gone, because the word had been taken out. And I think you'll find that anywhere you look. Any church where they abandon God's word, where they try to broaden the narrow way, try and make things more acceptable, more appealing to people, well, God's glory will depart also. So chapter 5, we read, And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. Ashdod being one of their five principal cities. Now the Philistines, we read even as far back as Genesis 21, were in the land. In Exodus 13, 17, um, we read, read there, uh, they were fearful of the, the Israelites, and that they knew they were coming. But there was these five key cities um, that were there, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Garth, Ekron, uh, and Gaza, of course, as well which was the principal city, looking at a map. We're looking very much on the kind of coast side uh, of Israel, of the nation. Uh, and these were the cities, uh, and so we see that, as I say, Garth was the principal city. Um, but this ark now is taken back, and it does the journey around all these cities, because there's a real problem that develops. We read that when the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and they set it by Dagon. Now, the incredible thing happens here, I mean, Dagon, by the way, is derived from Dark, which means fish uh, in the Sumerian language. 
Um, there were various statues that have been found of uh, this half man, half fish god. By the way, same god that was worshipped um, um, when Jonah went to Nineveh. The same god that was worshipped. So when Jonah turns up having his uh, little fishy tail to tell, uh, no doubt they took more notice because they worshipped this fish god. And uh, a few comments there, which I'll leave in the notes. But this god that was worshipped um, by these people. In the um, British Museum, there's reliefs of this individual, uh, this Dagon character, this fish god. Uh, what is interesting, if you can see there, the bits of the circle, particularly the one, as you look on the left there, that's an arm coming down uh, with some sort of bracelet on it. But the hands have been like chopped off on this relief. Now, it could just be coincidental, but we find in Scripture that as this image is set up before the ark, or this, ark, this image is there and the ark is placed before it, this image falls over. They come in the morning and they find it. And this happens a couple of days, and they find that eventually the hands and the head and everything are, are chopped off of this thing supernaturally, and they realize that it's because they've placed the ark of God there. So eventually they end up moving the ark of God. They take it around all their cities, and they find that wherever the ark is, People start getting rather ill and sick. Uh, they have an outbreak of hemorrhoids and uh, other things. So it's a very uncomfortable, unpleasant experience for them all. And uh, they just end up wanting to get rid of the ark. And just to note again, we looked at this. The sons of Noah, you come down the line of Ham, one of the sons of Noah. Then we have Cush. Um, and Mizraim, his descendants, we come down and we find that we've got uh, Pathrusium, Kishulim, and out of whom we're told came Philistine, which is the Philistines. Uh, and the Cafetorium as well were grouped together. So it's descendants coming down from Noah's line. They, they weren't indigenous to the land. They moved into the land of Canaan at a later time. Okay, so we find then that because of the situation, the Philistines are so concerned about this problem, they end up wanting to send the ark back. They consult their, their priests and say, how should we do it? And they decide that they're going to send back the ark. And it's quite a funny account, really, we have in Scripture. Um, they make these golden hemorrhoids, and they put them on the, the card and so on. Um, as Chuck Misler once said, I wonder who got the model for that. I have no idea. And anyway, so they send it back on this cart uh, with these new oxen, and they lead, let this, these, these uh, cows head back now. And the, cow, the cows no doubt being led and directed of the Lord end up coming back into Israel and we get this really strange account in chapter 6 because it comes to a place called Beth Shemesh and they're so excited when they see the ark but what they do is they remove the lid from the ark, the mercy seat. Let's just read from verse 19 of chapter 6. And he smote, this is God, smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord even he smote of the people fifty thousand and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord has smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they receive the ark. They're very excited to receive the ark back. But possibly just out of uh, being inquisitive, they take the lid off the ark and they look into the ark and they die. Why? Why would God do that? Well, the reason is quite simple. Because what they did, they removed the mercy seat from the ark and they looked directly at the law. And the principle that we should learn from that is that if we try and keep the law or look at the law without the mercy of God there, we will die. There is no remedy. The only reason we can be saved is because of the mercy of God which sits over and covers, if you like, the law of God. Because by God's law, by God's righteousness, by God's standards, we are all deserving of his wrath and judgment. The only thing that separates us from that is his mercy, the mercy seat that sat on the top of the ark. And God was trying to teach the people here a very important lesson, that they cannot play around with the things of God, and that the law of God is holy, righteous law. And none of us can keep it, which is why we need a saviour. We need somebody that can keep the law of God. Somebody that can stand in our place. And we need God's mercy. Very, very important lesson that we find there. So anyway, we move on through our study. We get to chapter 7. And after all these things now, Samuel is going to call the nation together again. Verse 5 of chapter 7. Samuel said, gather all of Israel to Mizpah. And I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel 
in Mizpah. This, by the way, is the place where not long before this, 20,000 Israelites have been buried there. Again, God brings them to this situation. It was the biggest assembly for, as a nation that they had for 20 years. And God brings them back to this place, the place where they would remember. It's the last time they were here, they'd been defeated. Now, all their pride and self-sufficiency has been dealt with. And along with that 20,000 that have died at this site now, their pride and self-sufficiency are buried as well. And we read, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. And they were smitten before Israel. So Israel didn't even get involved in this, this fighting to start with. It's the God again that acts, very similar to the, that which we've seen in the book of Joshua, where God uses natural elements to bring defeat upon Israel's enemies. And we're told, And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Beth Cast. So originally we have these, these thunderstorms and hail and all that kind of thing, and then Israel chase after them and they defeat them. And then, this important point, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto has the Lord helped us. It's kind of, this far we've come, and the Lord has always been with us. The Lord has never abandoned us. And they set up this pillar, this place of memorial. And we see a number of these in Scripture, where God calls individuals. We saw it with Joshua as they come across the Jordan. We find it with Jacob with a pillar at Bethel, and so on. That God causes us to establish these places of memorial, a place where we can look back and remember those moments in our life where God just brings us to our senses and we realize his incredible deliverance. That The danger is we get complacent. We get so used to our circumstances. We get comfortable and we forget that the reason we're in that place of blessing is because of what the Lord has done for us. And so we need those memorials. For us, communion is one such memorial. It's a time where we can come back to this place. We can look, as it were, upon that stone and we can see what God has done for us and we can be reminded the children of Israel were to be continually reminded of those stones that Joshua had placed at Gilgal. We read, when your children ask in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you're to tell them. Remind them about the Red Sea. Remind them about the wilderness. Remind them how we crossed the Jordan. You know, we need those continual reminders in our own lives. There should be a memorial, if you like, or often many memorials on our journey. Into chapter 8 then, and we see now the rejection, rejection of theocracy, the rejection of God's rule over the people. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons will not in, not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like the world, is really what they're saying. But the thing did please Samuel. And when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people, and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done, since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Notice it's the voice of the people that are bringing this about. This hasn't been born out of a, a prayer meeting. It's been born out of a committee. They've got together. They've decided they want to be like the nations around them. They hadn't gone to God and sought God. We see a similar situation in Revelation chapter 2. And uh, going through, we read of this church of Pergamos. Pergamos means mixed marriage. And we see there that a fusion of paganism and Christianity really from a prophetic point of view relating to the time of Constantine where Christianity became legalized and then following on from that we get to this point where suddenly we have a man to rule over the church. Suddenly it's no longer us and God. Suddenly there's a man put in place. Originally that was an emperor who also had responsibility over the church. And that then started this uh, fusion with uh, the religious orders of things and the, the political systems of the world. And of course, out of that was born the Roman Catholic Church, which believes its rightful place is not just to rule over the people of God, but to rule over the world. 
to have this dominion over the kings of the world. And we see through the history of the Catholic Church how that was played out. But it's all born from the same thing. Israel, at this point, rejects God as their ruler. The church did exactly the same thing historically. And the parallels are incredible as we go through. We'll study more as we go through God's word. There'll be occasions where we'll look into some of these things in more detail. But again, the same things happening with the church has happened with Israel. You see, in choosing Saul, the nation rejected the father. Much later in Israel's history, in choosing Barabbas, they rejected the son. And when they chose their own leaders, instead of the witness of the apostles, they rejected the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, chapter 751, Stephen there, before he's taken out and stoned, says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. God had always intended a kingdom for Israel. We need to understand that it wasn't something that God didn't ever want, but it was to be done in his timing. Deuteronomy 17 makes that clear, because it talks there of when a king sits on the throne. But it wasn't this particular time. However, there were two prerequisites before the Messiah could come. God, of course, we go back to Genesis chapter 3.15, the fall of man. God promises the seed of the woman. To be the one who would deliver and redeem. And we go through this situation in the Old Testament. Finally, Abraham is chosen as his family through whom God will work. God will send the Messiah. But in order for this to take place then, we need two things to be in place. One of them was the law. Well, that was given to the nation at Sinai. Why was the law necessary? The law was there, as we're told in the book of Galatians, to show us we need a saviour. To confine all under sin. To show us that we cannot keep God's righteous standard by our efforts. So the law was a prerequisite before the Messiah came. The other thing, of course, was the monarchy. The monarchy had to be established because Jesus is to sit on the throne of David. So we needed this monarchy, this system in Israel to be established for Jesus to come back and sit on his throne. Two very important aspects of the history of Israel and why God chose to use the nation as he did. So we get to chapter 9 and we're told there, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. The son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of uh, Becherath, the son of Aphpeah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. If we look at the lineage of Saul, he was a Benjamite, as we've seen already. Comes down through this family line all the way down. Interesting again... He's the tenth man. It's this kind of recurring theme we find. Uh, I'm not quite sure what you do with this, but time and time again in Scripture you'll find that the tenth man in any lineage is always someone of significance. Saul, well, he had everything in his favour. He was a strong body, we're told, a humble mind, a new heart, spiritual power, loyal friends. And most of all, he had the guidance and prayers of Samuel. And yet, in spite of all those advantages, he failed miserably. Why? Ultimately because he would not allow God to be the Lord of his life. You see, God will never violate our free will. Saul potentially had everything set for him. He had no reason not to succeed. And yet, God wasn't the Lord of his life. He still wanted to be Lord of his own life. As I said before, there's two thrones we need to understand. The throne of David. If you understand the throne of David, it will make sense of what's going on in the world, and particularly the events in the Middle East. If you understand the throne of your own heart, you'll understand the battle and the challenges. And that throne in our life needs to be yielded to the King of Kings. The Lord needs to sit on the throne of our heart before he sits on the throne of David. We need to get to that place where we submit to him. So we read verse 24 of Samuel um, chapter 10. Samuel said to all the people... See you him, and whom the Lord has chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. Now it says the Lord has chosen, and God indeed did pick Saul, but he picked Saul on the back of the people, crying out for a king. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. And then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom, and wrote it in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. So Saul is now established as the king of the nation, but there are some that don't want to follow. We read... And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. You see, God had placed around him people that would serve, that would be obedient. 
But then we're told, verse 27, But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. So at this point, Saul chooses to leave it, to let it go, even though these group of people are not willing to follow him. And the reason for this is that God is going to allow Saul to be promoted, as it were, in the eyes of the people, as we go into chapter 11. It's a great lesson we find throughout Scripture. You know, the promotion doesn't come from the east or the west, but from the Lord. We need to allow the Lord to raise us up and to lift us up. We're told then that Naash the Amorites came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Naash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. And Naash the Amorite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. Naash, by the way, means serpent. And the Amorites had uh, been ruling in this area back in Judges chapter 1, also Judges chapter 11. Uh, it was the Amorites uh, here that uh, Jephthah, I mentioned earlier, went to deal with. Um, here, then, we see the situation that they've come up there causing real problems. Jabesh Gilead are willing to make a covenant with them, but the Ammonites are not. And they're saying, no, no, the only covenant we'll make with you is if you'll let us basically pull out your right eyes and it'll be a reproach. You'll end up as our servants and so on. Well, this gets Saul's attention. We read, the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messages unto all the coasts of Israel. And then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. So in other words, they just bought themselves seven days. And they said, look, we need to try and find a solution to this problem. And they obviously do. Word of this then comes to Saul. And we read then, verse 4, Then came messengers of Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the, the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him of the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. Why? Well, because if we understand the history, and we mentioned this briefly previously, and I think we were going through Judges, There was a situation where almost all of the men of Benjamin were wiped out. There was just 600 men left. And to find wives for them, they looked around in Israel as to who hadn't helped them in that particular conflict. And it happened to be the people of Jabesh-Gilead. So they took the the young women from Jabesh-Gilead and they brought them down for for the people of Benjamin to marry as wives. So in all probability... What we're looking at here is that Saul's mum had come from this place. At the very least, his grandmother. But more likely, looking at the timings of these things, it would have been Saul's mum. So as he hears this news, obviously his mum wouldn't have been there at the time, most likely with him now. But relatives, family would have been there. So Saul responds and he takes a yoke of oxen, cuts it into pieces, he sends it throughout the coast of Israel... Just like we saw with a situation um, with the Levites' concubine back in the book of Judges. And he says, whoever doesn't come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Well, we read, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And so they then give this message back. So then said Samuel to the people, verse 14, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the people in Gilgal. And they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So as a result of this battle now, and Saul gets the victory, then all the nation are suddenly united now under Saul. They realize that this is somebody who God has raised up. But in chapter 12, we see God make a very clear warning to Saul. He says, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Well, this is Samuel talking to Saul. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he's done for you. But if you shall still do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both you and your king. So for the nation, for Saul himself, God's saying through Samuel that you're to obey. If you don't obey, God will bring his wrath upon you. This warning that's laid down before the nation. We get to chapter 13 and we come to the first of two real failures on the part of Saul. After two years on the throne, Saul leads an army against the Philistines. Jonathan, Saul's son, 
attacked and defeated a garrison just prior to, to this. And this has caused the, the Philistines to respond by sending an army with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and an infantry so large it's not even numbered. And the Israeli army come out and they're afraid some start to flee. Saul waits for seven days for Samuel to arrive. But Saul is kept waiting and Samuel doesn't arrive. And the problem is that the army then start to scatter and start to flee from Saul. Saul then decides to personally offer a burnt offering in complete violation to the law. Saul was a Benjamite, not a Levite. He wasn't authorised to do this. He wasn't allowed, according to the law. See, God had given strict instructions regarding offerings because the shed blood of an innocent substitute would atone for their sin and grant them favour with the Lord. Now, this is why Saul wanted this offering to take place. He wanted God's favour before he steps out into battle. But he decides he's going to do this himself. Saul did not respect, if I can put it this way, the blood of the covenant. In Hebrews 10, we read there, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose you, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing? and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. It just highlights the issue of the blood, how precious that blood is, and how foolish Saul was to try and enter into this situation. We're told, verse 10, it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you came not within the days appointed, and the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal. And I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, is what he says. I forced myself. I had to do it. Therefore, and offered a burnt offering. He's saying, I didn't have a choice. I had to go against God. I was in such a desperate situation. Well, this just speaks of a complete and utter lack of faith. He wasn't prepared to trust God. He's already in this place where he's ruling his own life. He's the one that's making the decisions. And if God helps him, fine. But he's the one that's ultimately making the decisions here. Notice again, I forced myself. I had to do this. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him, notice what we're told, a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So this is the first real blow, as it were, and the first declaration that God has chosen someone else. Chapter 14, we get a great example of Jonathan's faith. Well, Jonathan and his armor bearer go up against 20 of the Philistines. It's an incredible situation. Jonathan asked the Lord what he should do. You know, Lord, if they'll say, come up here, then we know that you've given us the victory. If they don't say, come up here, we'll know that we're not to go. The question really for us is, you know, we see that God give Jonathan his armor bearer the victory. But how much are we prepared to trust God? You know, if we ask God to guide us in a particular situation, are we willing to follow what results are we looking for? I mean, it was a real situation. I've shared this before. There was some time ago now, I was in a position where um, I was made redundant from the job I was in. And I got a, another job, which I wasn't particularly happy with at the time. And I really sought God. I was given this opportunity to go and do a job, which I thought was a good thing, but I really sought the Lord. And there was a particular issue over the, the salary, and it was such a small amount, it was, it was not the point. I, I, I prayed and said, Lord, if they say that much, I'll take it as a confirmation from you that it's a yes. If they say no, then I'll take it as a no. And they came back and they offered such a small amount, and literally just a few hundred pound a year difference, which is nothing. But it wasn't what I prayed. And Joy and I sat down and we said, look, what do we do? And we said, well, we asked God to guide us. And we said, God, if it's this, then we'll trust you. And it was based upon this scripture. And if they say that, then it's a no. And they didn't come back. So I rang and I said, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm not going to accept. Put the phone down and my heart sunk because I kind of wanted the job. It's actually technically the job I'm now doing now is where it started. And within 10 minutes, the phone rang. And they rang back and said, 
actually, no, we will offer you what you asked for. And it was just one of those little things. You know, from a financial point of view, that wasn't the issue. It was, a, am I prepared to trust God? I said to God, I prayed a prayer, and I said, Lord, if this, then this. And when it wasn't that, was I prepared? It's a little bit like, and it's kind of one of those almost um, comical situations as, as Christians. You know, we go out shopping sometimes, and we pray for a car park space, don't we? Lord, please find me a car park space. What happens if you get there and you don't find a car park space? How many of you have ever turned around and come home again? Believing the Lord doesn't want you to go shopping that day. No? Why do we pray in the first place? Why do we ask God for car park space if we're going to just keep looking until we find one anyway? But it's, it's kind of a silly example in a sense, but it illustrates the point. When we ask God, are we really willing to wait for his answer? And are we prepared to accept his answer? It's kind of a challenge for us all. Well, in chapter 15, we see another failure on behalf of Saul. God instructs Saul through Samuel to destroy the Amalekites. Amalek had led that first attack of Israel when they'd uh, left, uh, uh, left Egypt across the Red Sea, uh, Rephidim, where the rock was, and so on. And God had given Israel the victory there. And God had said that he'd wipe out the remembrance of Amalek because of what they'd done. Again, these are part of those giant tribes that God was wiping out. Well, Saul was to defeat them. And he does defeat them, but he spares King Agag, and he spares the cattle, which God has said to him, you're not to do. We read, then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, it repents me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he's turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Samuel's invested so much time in this individual. We've seen already that Samuel was praying for him, wanting to instruct him and teach him the things that were right. And now... Saul has just, again, blown it. Samuel therefore comes to confront Saul. Saul boasts, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. As Samuel arrives, this is the words that, Samuel, that Saul uses. I've done what God asked me to do. And Samuel says, so what's the bleating of the sheep that I can hear? Saul's saying to himself, shh, keep him quiet. You know, it's just, Saul is... Uh, shown to be unreliable, untrustworthy, unfaithful, even in the simple things that God calls him to do. He also had allowed Agag to live, and Samuel, as a result of this, in righteous anger, kills Agag. Agag gets to the point, he thinks, I'm safe now, I'll be okay, but no. God has already made it very clear what's to happen to these people. Samuel then departs from Saul for the last time, and the kingdom effectively, as far as Samuel... As he's leaving, Saul reaches out and tries to wrench or or grab hold of his garment and it tears. And Samuel says to Saul that God, in the same way, is going to tear the kingdom from you. So Saul now knows that he's going to lose the kingdom. The question is now going to be who, where and when. Well, that brings us to chapter 16 and we find this man after God's own heart. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will it be that you will mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And you know how the situation works. There's natural eyes versus the the spiritual. Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. He goes to Jesse's house. They bring the boys out before him one by one. And we read, it came to pass that when they were come, they looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so we see then eventually the ascend for David and Samuel anoints him to be king. Meanwhile, Saul is being troubled by an evil spirit, we find out. It's a spirit, by the way, we're told from the Lord, not of the Lord. There's a very subtle distinction in the King James. And you'll find that When you have a spirit from the Lord, it's indicating a rebellious spirit, a spirit that has departed from God, rebelled against God. And not a spirit of the Lord, i.e. those that serve him still. It's just a subtle distinction, but you'll see it consistent through the text. And so as a result of this problem that Saul's having now, being tormented, they send for a musician to come and play. It just so happens that David's a musician. So David now gets invited to come to the royal court. And gets to see everything that's going on. He gets to see what it's like as a king. What it's like in that environment. The kind of problems that Saul's going to face and challenges and what not to do. 
It's interesting again, though, that godly music here from a worshipping heart is able to soothe this troubled situation that Saul finds himself when he's being troubled by the Spirit. Music is a wonderful thing that God has given us in allowing us to worship him through the gift of music. Ezekiel 28 actually points out that Satan himself, before he fell, had this position, if you like, of worship leader in heaven. And that actually he had musical instruments built into his, his very being. It's been said before that all the world's problems started with the worship leader. (laughs) But music is a very, very powerful thing. And of course, Satan loves to hijack it and use it for his ends. But God also loves music and uses it for his glory. Well, we get to chapter 17. Of course, we're very familiar with this situation. Philistines once again come out to war against Israel. It's fulfillment of Judges Chapter 1 verse 2 where we're told that those that Israel hadn't dealt with would be thorns in their sides. But this time they come out, they've got a champion who's challenging any one of Israel's soldiers to a duel. Let's have a one-on-one. Whoever wins, they are, their army will win. Well, King Saul is, uh, seems to be hiding in his tent, keeping out of the way. His army are terrified of his prospects. But David has now just returned from Bethlehem. He's been home with his dad. He's come back to the front line. He's brought supplies for his brothers. And he starts hearing this talk. He's really intrigued by what's being said and by this challenge that this giant of the Philistines has put forward. And he says, David spoke to the men that stood by him, saying, what shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It almost as if none of the people in Israel actually thought about this at this point. They, they know that Israel are under threat, but they're not realizing that this Philistine's claim is defying the armies of the living God. Incredible declaration of faith. Well, news of David's interest reaches Saul, and David is brought before the king. <laughs> David said to Saul, let, let, let not man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight the Philistine. Well, we know the situation. That David then is kind of kitted out with Saul's armour. He can't even move with it on. Takes it off and says, I don't need that. I don't need the physical armour. David had a, a spiritual armour that was uh, far more uh, usable, far more beneficial to him. Of course, David goes out and defeats Goliath. We'll talk about it in a moment. But David and Saul, the contrast, of course, both had come from humble backgrounds. Both were raised up to deliver Israel. Both were given God's spirit to enable them. And yet Saul chose his own path of disobedience, whereas David chose to walk by faith. Saul came to this bitter end, but David has a glorious end and a future that we're told of in Scripture. Of course, with David and Goliath, David was just a shepherd. Goliath was a professional combatant. He was used to this kind of uh, conflict. David was not tall, but Goliath was over nine feet. If we were to look at that again, just to give you some kind of idea of scale, we're looking at a significantly taller individual than David was. And David probably wasn't even six foot. Goliath, of course, was fully armed. David took just five stones. Why five? Well, Goliath had four brothers. David was ready for the lot. He was stepping out in faith. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armour in his tent. Why, why are we told this? A strange kind of comment, just, just inserted in there. So David tops Goliath's head off, he takes it to Jerusalem. This is even more bizarre when you realise that at this time Jerusalem did not belong to Israel. It was in enemy hands. It was a dangerous effort even to take it there in the first place. But he takes it to Jerusalem. The armour is placed in his tent. Well, the reason seemingly was for a later prophetic fulfilment. John 19 verse 17, we read there, and he... Jesus, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, or to you and I, Goliath of Gath. You see, this place where this skull is put is the very place where the cross would later be erected above it, where Jesus would die for the sins of the world. Genesis 3.15, again, we're reminded that I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. Well, Jesus' heel was bruised by the serpent. But in this incredible declaration of victory, Jesus places his feet upon the head of the enemy, 
upon the head of Goliath, who represented everything that, that Satan had, all the counsels of, of Satan. An incredible declaration that Jesus has the victory. Chapter 18, we read of David's rise to fame, how he goes out, he's successful in all the battles that he, he takes, and so on. Um, he and Jonathan become such close friends. And it's interesting that we read, just picking up verse 3, Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him. Jonathan takes his own garment and gives it. We read, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword, to his bow, and to his girdle. See, Jonathan was in line to the throne by blood, but David was in line by divine decree. Jonathan abdicated, willingly submitting to God's will. Are you pleased when God uses another? See, Jonathan, a great character in scripture, he was so pleased to see God working through another's life. David has been anointed to be king. God has prepared his heart as a shepherd. God had given him the faith to trust. And God had brought him to the place to learn his trade through observation in the palace before the king. He's brought him before Goliath. He's received this public honor and recognition. Jonathan has effectively abdicated by taking off his royal robe, giving it to David. Everything is now set for David to take the throne. But then, we read, it came to pass on the morrow that an evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand, as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. Tozer said, I'm doubtful if God can use a man greatly until he hurts him deeply. David is given five times more print than any other character in scripture. The 66 chapters of the Bible devoted to this man. David is though going to spend 15 years fleeing and hiding. Why would God do this? Well, the answer is given to us in the book of James. We read there, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, complete, wanting nothing. That's where we're going to leave it for today. We'll pick it up from there next week as we start to look at now the life of David. We start to see David's development and growth. David will get to a rock bottom before the Lord will start to raise him up. But then he will become king of this nation. This is our hearts. Father... We thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the lessons that are there for us. Teaching us, Lord, time and time again to trust you. Oh, Father, how we need to be mindful that every day you'll challenge us to that one question, do you trust me? Father, help us to trust you, Lord, in our circumstances, our situations. Help us not to be like Saul, so impatient, so desperate to find a solution that will result to our own wisdom our own understanding. Lord, help us to be willing to trust you and to wait patiently for you. Father, help us to to learn these lessons that we may grow in knowledge and grace for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.